Hey guys. So if you've been a listener of the Super Armenian Brothers podcast, you've probably realized that we haven't released an episode in, oh, probably about eight to nine months. I apologize for that. Mine and Colt's life's got uh, kind of wild there for a minute. He was working a lot of hours. I was doing a lot of things at the church and with school. And, you know, I also had uh, my first child, my wife, this year. So life got a little busy. We didn't have quite enough time for the podcast. And we didn't want to, you know, put out something mediocre. The episode you're about to listen to now is on Irresistible Grace. And it was recorded actually in April of 2021. Since then, it's been sitting on my computer unedited. I recently picked it up this week, edited it, and sent it out for you guys to enjoy. You notice a few things, like I said, um, I said, you know, it's been a few weeks since we released the episode and stuff, because even then, in April, we were having issues getting regular releases out to you guys, and um, it's just been a little bit of a struggle, so we're hoping to get back on track. I can say that we're probably not going to be releasing an episode once a week anymore, Probably two episodes a month, if I had to guess, but um, we're just going to see how this goes and go from there. I really hope you guys enjoy this, and thank you for being faithful fans. I've uh, received a few messages from you guys, and I really appreciate it. You guys continue listening and inquiring about more episodes, so please enjoy this episode. Thank you. Super Armenian Brothers Podcast. I'm Matthew. I'm joined here today by our show host, Colt. I just want to remind you guys to go like us on Facebook, follow us up on there, and uh, if you don't haven't already done so, please go like and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us those five stars. It helps other people find the show. And not too long ago, we received a message from one of our listeners, and they were giving us like an, a little bit of an encouragement. We don't want to use names or anything or tell you what they said, because I don't know if they intended it to be private or not, but we just want to thank you and what you sent in. It was a great encouragement. Um, we are very humbled that we were able to help you in your theological walk and your faith. And we hope that it's affected other listeners in that way also. Absolutely. And I'll encourage anybody that has any questions or anything to say, any topic ideas for us, please send us those voice messages or message on Facebook or anything. That's, um, It's really really cool to be able to interact it makes it more more real not like it's just me and you sitting here talking that's right <laughs> i love <laughs> I, I i have always i mean since we started the podcast i think we're on this is going to be episode 14 i think right mm-hmm. i um i've wanted to do for you know since we began i wanted to do a listener question podcast oh yeah bad that I've sounds really, awesome i've really wanted to do one so <laughs> Sending questions, guys, so you can fulfill my dream. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, Colt, what coffee do you have today, sir? Uh, So today is my next uh, subscription from Mystic Monk Coffee. I got their breakfast blend this month. Uh, I actually made it as espresso. I put it on ice, added some water, so made a little blonde Americano. Sounds very good. I don't think I've ever had anything like that before. Pretty good. I've got a Vietnamese cold brew today. So all that basically is is cold brew coffee and then half and half and uh, simple syrup. 
Yeah, we uh, lived on those in college. Very good. <laughs> They're very good. But anyway, our topic for today is irresistible grace. Mm-hmm. You know, we took a break. The listeners might realize and we apologize for that life's just been real busy so trying to get right back into it (laughs) but today we're going to be talking about irresistible grace or i mean essentially what it comes down to is the question is grace resistible or not and what type of grace is resistible and what type of grace is not resistible right and that kind of i mean that kind of sounds confusing but hopefully we can explain this as we go on so we'd like to begin first with the Calvinist position and try to explain that because, you know, that's kind of the basis of where Arminians come from because everything, you know, is a response to that initial Calvinist position. Yeah. So I'll actually start out. I know I typically do this from the other end, but it's actually a misconception of what Calvinists believe to think that, and again, I'll add my little caveat, not that I think this is consistent, uh, but not all Calvinists believe all types of grace are irresistible. Uh, To read a quote from the great uh, Charles Hodge uh, from his Systematic Theology, Volume 2, page 687, uh, it will of course be admitted that if efficacious grace is the exercise of almighty power, it is irresistible. That common grace or that influence of the Spirit which is granted more or less to all men is often effectually resisted, is of course admitted. That the true believer often grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit is also no doubt true. And in short, that all those influences which are in their nature moral, exerted through the truth, are capable of being opposed, is also beyond dispute. But if the special work of regeneration, in the narrow sense of that word, be the effect of almighty power, then it cannot be resisted any more than the act of creation." The effect follows immediately on the will of God, as when he said, let there be light, and light was. So Hodge there is saying, essentially, and I'm going to put it in my own words, and if I'm misrepresenting, please let me know, that yes, the the regenerative grace, the effectual grace of God, is irresistible. Nothing can be done when the Holy Spirit calls a person to salvation. There's nothing they can do to reject it. There's nothing they can do to resist it. It is completely irresistible. But on the other hand, uh, common grace, uh, as it's often called in Calvinist reform circles, uh, the the grace that is sometimes considered by Calvinists extended to all people, the things that, uh, the grace that prevents people from being complete moral monsters 100% of the time can be resisted. Again, it's a misrepresentation. Some Arminians think that Calvinists believe no grace is resistible. Uh, And to me, I I do think it's a bit of an inconsistency, but uh, essentially, irresistible grace, the eye of tulip, is that the effectual call of God to salvation cannot be resisted. And if it appears to be resisted, then it was not an effectual call of God to salvation in the first place. That's right. And Calvin calls it the, this is from Calvin's Institutes 3.24.8. There is a, the general call by which God invites all equally to himself through the outward preaching of the word. 
And he goes on and says, the other kind of call is special, which he designs for the most part to give to the believers alone. While by the inward illumination of the spirit, he causes the preached word to dwell in their hearts. Yet sometimes he also causes those whom he illuminates only for a time to partake of it. Then he justly forsakes them on the account of their ungratefulness and strikes them with an even greater blindness. So there, you know, besides that last couple sentences there, mm. Calvin is um, talking about what Colt was just speaking of from Hodge, the general call, which is through preaching. So say in a church, you would have 10 unbelievers, those who are not already preordained to be elect by God, they would receive the general call of salvation. Okay. And that general call is just a call. It's an outward call. The Holy Spirit actually doesn't affect them in any way. Um, I don't even know if in most Calvinist theologies, if that general call of salvation is any working of the spirit at all, it might be, it might not be right. I mean, I'm not exactly sure about that. I'll admit that, but the other kind that special call, which is only for the elect is irresistible. It cannot be resisted. The spirit works it and you cannot resist it. And then Weirdly, after that, Calvin decides to talk about something about how God will illuminate somebody for only a time and make them think that they're elect. And then because they're ungrateful of their election, he strikes them down with an even greater blindness after that. That was the first time I read anything like that. That's pretty wild. Yeah, I've not heard that talked about too much. I've, <clears throat> you know, typically when apostasy is talked about in Calvinist circles, it's typically that apostasy is really not possible. And anything that looks like apostasy, they were never saved in the first place. But I don't know. That's a that's a strange category that he's sort of putting people in that I've never really heard of. Is that they were illuminated for a time? And I'm not sure if that means. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, that's, most of the time the distinction is made between the outward call and the inward call. You know, somebody hmm. might there might be someone who comes in the house of God. Here's the outward call of salvation, and right. they are logically drawn to Christ because right. you. Know, Christ is good, so they come, but there's no inward work of salvation in them. That there, Calvin's talking about an inward work that God only allows for a time, and then he forsakes them. That just, I cannot get along with that at all. You know, I mean, the scripture immediately comes to mind, I will never leave you, never forsake you. I mean, even, right. I mean, just about all the words of Jesus concerning that is, I will not do that to you. But there, Calvin's trying to make some sort of, you know, picture of God that he just forsakes people if they become somewhat ungrateful of their salvation and then right. puts them in a worse condition than what they were. Man, that's, that's pretty rough. That's pretty that rough. Is rough. My, my biggest issue with that sort of idea of the general call of the Holy Spirit is if indeed that general call is not meant to be effectual in any way, that to me would seem like the word of God returning void. That is true. Now we know in scripture and it tells us that the word of God will not return void. I believe that through the preached word, and this is something that, and, I, and I'm sure you feel the same way. I know humbles me as someone who preaches that God's word being preached does not return void. It is doing something. Yep. That that general call that goes to all people. I mean, and I, I get, I guess in a sense I would as an Arminian believe in a general call because I believe when the, when the word is preached, the Holy spirit is doing something. And to me to believe that through the preached word, the spirit can be doing nothing to someone. 
seems actually to to cheapen or to lessen the grace of God. If we consider the preached word of God as um, you know, the preaching of the word as sacramental, mm-hmm. you know, something that gives grace rather than a merely a lecture of logic given from a you know out of a, just a merely a human mouth, but if we believe like you know Wesleyans and what we are now Pentecostals, we mm-hmm. believe along those lines that the preached word has is sacramental in nature, meaning that the grace of God works through it. Right. Then it doesn't make a lot of sense just from our standpoint that the preached word would return and nothing happens because you know we truly believe that the spirit of God is active and right. working through the preaching of the word, much like he is active and working in the hearts of believers through other sacraments also. Right. And yeah, taking that, that, that idea that the spirit truly is active in the preached word, not, I guess you would say not just in the ears or in the mind or in the heart of someone listening, but actually through the very words coming from the mouth of the preacher that the spirit is active, then surely something must be happening. Yeah, and that's interesting because, you know, Calvin's the one who takes a position of uh, like a pneumatic uh, presence in the Eucharist, like the mm-hmm. Spirit is active in the Eucharist and the Spirit brings us up to Christ and the Spirit affects us. It's just interesting that he would not believe, and maybe he does, maybe there, there's a place where he says yeah. this, that, you know, the Spirit works through that general call. And I believe that he would say the Spirit works on the elect through the general call. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the spirit does not work on the non-elect of the general call. Right. I mean, I would even go so far to say, just looking at it from our standpoint, that in the general call of preaching, if we're just going to put it to a preaching standpoint, right. in the general call of preaching, I think the grace of God is at least offered and or working in the life of an unbeliever also. Absolutely. Yeah, I think... Um... Again, speaking of prevenient grace, the the Arminian... Armenian belief that grace is extended to really to all in the world. And it's, it's similar in the idea of common grace, but is carries more weight, I would say than common grace does in the life of the unbeliever. Provenient grace does. I think the preached word is one of the main, if not the main method of the spirit offering provenient grace, because when the word of God is preached, I don't believe it returns void. I believe something happens in the mind and the heart of the listener, no matter who they are. But if that word is not effectual, then that is only the fault of the one who rejects it. There is nothing, nothing inherent about the preached word that I think that I think would cause someone to not believe. It, it is a stumbling block to those who do not believe, and it's only their fault. Because the Spirit is reaching out. It's sacramental. The Spirit is active in preaching, is active in the proclaiming of the Word of God. And I mean, we believe that the only way a person can authentically preach, as somebody who comes from a Pentecostal background, preaching is only done under the influence and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Without that, it's not preaching. And if the person doesn't respond to that, that is them resisting the grace and the call of God. Yep. No matter how weak the preacher it's not about the rhetorical strength of the preacher. Cause I mean, exactly. Paul, when he goes to the Corinthians, what does he say? 
I did not come to you with all these fancy words and all that stuff. You know, it's the Matthew International Version. I did not come to you with all these fancy words and, you know, great rhetoric, but I come to you preaching Christ and him crucified. It, right, that right there proves that the weakness of the preacher has no effect upon, you know, those who are saved or not saved, those who are called or not called. It's the working of the spirit through the preached word. And, you know, for all of us preachers out there, that gives us a lot of hope. Exactly. If, if anything, I would say the weakness of the preacher, and again, we're getting off on a little bit of a rabbit trail talking about preaching, but that's okay. I would say the weakness of the preacher, if anything, displays the power and the grace of the call of God. Because if someone responds to someone who is a, as a great teacher, as someone who's such a great speaker and, and they, they get such an emotional high off of it and that, you know, they're great words, they're led to the altar and they have this big experience and, all this kind of stuff, the speaker can do that. The speaker can make you feel like something happened. But if on a testimony night, a, a person who has never stood in a pulpit before simply gives their testimony, simply yeah. presents the gospel and someone responds to that through no beautiful language, no, no great speech, that's the power of the gospel. That's the power of God and the salvation. That's, that is the Holy Spirit active through the proclaimed word of God. That's and right. Paul himself was, I mean, Paul was not a good speaker. He says it himself. I mean, somebody, he talked for so long and was so, I guess you could say not engaging. A young man fell out of a window and died from listening to him. I've never killed anybody preaching. But Paul did. <laughs> but, but Paul was the chosen instrument of God to the Gentiles. That's right. And so if that doesn't display the power of God, the power of the gospel, nothing does. It's the wisdom of God over our own foolishness. He, he calls Absolutely. it the foolishness of preaching. Absolutely. That's what it is. It's the foolishness of preaching. You know, as we've been talking, it reminded me of Romans 10, for whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Absolutely. You know, it's just, how will they hear without a preacher? It is the grace of God working through the preached word that draws people to salvation. Amen. Good stuff. Amen. So, Jumping back off that rabbit trail, try to get back on track. We're not saying, by the way, that Calvinists don't believe the Spirit of God works through preaching. They yes. very much so do. It's just some of the little bit of the, little bit of the logic that what we're looking at just doesn't make a lot of sense. Um. So for the Calvinist, Calvinist doctrine, there's a general call given unto all, which for them, I believe kind of removes some of the, how do I want to put it? Which for them kind of removes some of the blame upon God for not sending his spirit uh, mm-hmm. as what Arminius would have put as prevenient grace. Right. Uh, that general call kind of removes the um, responsibility of God to those who are damned. You know, because, yeah, they've received the general call. But 
they would have never accepted even if his spirit had affected them kind of thing. Right. You know, and that, and that kind of does that. And then that special call only goes to those who are already elected by God for salvation. And that special call, which is worked by the Holy Spirit, is what, you know, changes them and causes right. them to be saved. And to clarify, or not to clarify, but to, to add to that, I don't think the topic of grace is as much a divide between Calvinists and Arminians as some Calvinists and Arminians like to believe. Pointing to Arminius himself uh, in his Declaration of Sentiments, he says, <clears throat> In this manner I ascribe to grace the commencement, the continuance, and the consummation of all good, and to such an extent do I carry its influence that a man, though already regenerate, can, ne can neither conceive, will, nor do any good at all, nor resist any evil temptation, without this preventing and exciting, this following and cooperating grace. From this statement it will clearly appear that I by no means do injustice to grace by attributing, as it is reported of me, too much to man's free will. For the whole controversy reduces itself to the solution of this question, is the grace of God a certain irresistible force? That is, the controversy does not relate to those actions or operations which may be ascribed to grace. For I acknowledge and inculcate as many of these actions or operations as any man ever did, but it relates solely to the mode of operation, whether it be irresistible or not. With respect to which, I believe, according to the Scriptures, that many persons resist the Holy Spirit and reject the grace that is offered. So that was a lengthy quote. Uh, but to summarize in Colt's words, all he's saying there is that between those and the people who, between him and the people who disagree with him, the only difference that we believe about grace is whether it's resistible or irresistible. I believe grace is is the only method of salvation. We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, so that no one may boast. There's no room for boasting when you didn't do anything. I believe that grace saves. I believe that grace is the only only cause of a good thing in a unbeliever, a believer. That's the only source. God is the only source of good. The only way a person does a good act, again, whether saved or unsaved, is through the actual grace of God. I agree wholeheartedly with that. But the, the only difference is whether it's resistible or not. I, b I believe we've said that on previous episodes, too. I think so. I think we've touched on it before. I believe we have, but that, that is the core issue mm -hmm. right there. Is grace resistible or is grace irresistible? I mean, that, mm -hmm. that's, that is the core issue. No, because I mean, I know we as classical Arminians, we will stand arm in arm with Calvinist brothers and sisters. We are five sola believers. I mean, it's, it's yeah. It's the grace of God alone that saves. It's just some minor details that That's we disagree right. on. That's right. Roger Olson in his book says, to this, Calvinists would then today argue that if grace is resistible, salvation is not all of grace. And I think we touched on this a little bit in past episodes too. Mm -hmm. You know, The fact that if grace is resistible, salvation is not of grace, meaning that, we 
do something to receive the gift of salvation. To this, Olson says, a gift freely received is no less a gift than one received under compulsion. Right. So the idea is that from the point of the Calvinism is that the gift of salvation must be forced upon us so that it can remain monergistic. Right. Whereas for us, as we've talked about on past episodes, that you know, non-resistance is not a work. No. It is not a work. Arminius goes on to say in another place, that teacher obtains my highest approval or applause who ascribes as much as possible to divine grace, provided he so pleads the cause of grace as not to inflict an injury on the justice of God and not to take away the free will to that which is evil. So meaning, you know, God is God here is being protected from the authorship of sin by Arminius. He's saying yeah. that, you know, he applauds those who ascribe everything to divine grace, but not to the point that free will, which not, is not just free will to do good. It's, you know, the free will to even sin is not taken away from the believer, not taken right. away from those who are affected by grace, which I mean is very, very, very important. Absolutely. You know, we're, we're allowed to um, resist the grace of God even now. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. people do it every day. Christians do it every day. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, Part of the reason why, you know, we read from, read Charles Hodge, who has to admit that, you know, because we see active in the life of believers, we resist. I know, I know I resist the grace of God. Anytime I sin, anything, anytime I do think an evil thought or anything like that, that is me, I believe, actively resisting the grace of God. Because surely it's not God's will that I sin. And anytime I sin, that's especially as a believer, that's, I mean, that's all me. That's, yep. that's my flesh. That's the war in my flesh. There's you know, the inner man who agrees with the commandments and the law of God. That's absolutely the, the part of me that is the Holy Spirit in me wants me to do good. When I do not do good, that is me resisting the Holy Spirit who has who has been given to me as a seal of the eternal promises of God. And that's a I think that's a real thing, a real resistance happening. It's so clear. We see it. And so I, I don't think it follows to think that some acts of God, because it he, Hodge makes the distinction oddly to me that he talks about the the efficacious, efficacious grace, irresistible grace being an act of God. Therefore, it's irresistible. But there are other things that God does that are resistible. Would those not, to me, and again, this is me talking to a hypothetical person who's not here. Would those things, if all things are ordained by God, all things are willed by God, if there's anything that's resisted, would that not then follow that all, all grace is resistible? To me, it's, it seems to be an all-or-none type issue. Yeah. Sorry, I know that was a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I was working some stuff out in my head and talking out loud. Do you want to move on to Wesley now? We should move to Wesley. Yep. So, John Wesley. Now, this quote is very difficult. You, mm -hmm. You've really got to... It might be better if you guys would go and read it. From the <laughs> works of John Wesley... Uh, 
this is works of John Wesley, and here I have, uh, this is volume 13, and this is in his Calvinistic Controversy. And he writes this, With regard to the second irresistible grace, I believe that the grace which brings faith and thereby salvation into the soul is irresistible at that moment. That most believers may remember some time when God did irresistibly convince them of sin, that most believers do at some other times find God irresistibly acting upon their souls. Yet I believe that the grace of God both before and after these moments may be and hath been resisted, and that in general it does not act irresistibly, but we may comply therewith or may not. And I also do not deny that in those eminently styled the elect, if such there be, the grace of God is so far irresistible that they cannot but believe and be finally saved. But I cannot believe that all those must be damned in whom it does not thus irresistibly work, or that there is one soul on earth who has not and never had any other grace than such as does in fact increase his damnation and was designed of God to do so. That's a lot. That is a whole lot. So basically what Wesley's saying here is that there is some irresistible moments of grace, which it makes sense. Like mm-hmm. I don't think there's been a lot of people that really thought about this until Wesley come along the scenes as far mm-hmm. as Armenian circles go. I mean, there might be, but I'm not, I don't think so. He kind of pops up and says, yeah, there are sometimes grace is irresistible. He's like, you know, there might be a time where God irresistibly convicted you of sin, showed you that you were a sinner. There was no way we could have uh, resisted that. Some of us, you know, right. it, it just kind of happens. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty good. That, Absolutely. That's, oh that's yeah. I can, and I, oh, that's not, yeah, it's nothing I ever thought of before. Yeah. I've never thought of it, but then I, he is right. He is. And I, I can, I can think of a specific time in my life where I, yes, I know I was saved. I know I, I believed and all that kind of stuff, but there was a particular experience and Wesley himself, uh, we won't get too much into it today. You can look up the Aldersgate experience. Wesley, even after having been to coming to not, it wasn't America yet, the new world at the time, uh, having sailed across the ocean, been an evangelist and had lots of hardships before then goes to this church and has an experience where he says his heart was strangely warmed. And he describes it as a conversion experience, though he was already saved. Something happened to him that changed him for the rest of his life. Yep. And yeah, I think I think if, if a lot of Christians think back in their lives, they have had these irresistible experiences where maybe at one point the beauty of God was irresistibly shown to you. And it, it's, yeah, that's a interesting concept. And, you know, for Wesley, it's he said, you know, there at the beginning of the quote, the grace which brings faith and thereby salvation into the soul is irresistible at that moment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now that sounds really like you're jumping on a Calvinistic doctrine, but look what he says afterwards. Yet, I believe that the grace of God, both before and after those moments, may be and has been resisted. Mm-hmm. So, oh, and that in general it does not act irresistibly, yes. but we may comply with it or we may not. Yes. So, for him, for Wesley, 
there is a process of resisting or non-resistance to the grace of God, which brings you to that moment mm -hmm. of an irresistible, gracious moment to which God gives you the saving faith to bring you to salvation in him. Mm -hmm. However, there's there are moments that lead up to that, which you can resist or you cannot resist. You know, and even after that moment, you can resist that faith, that salvation, which he gives to you. You know, at that moment, he may give you that salvation and offer himself to you and you may resist it. Many have. Wesley says it here. Absolutely. Many has resisted. You know, that's what Absolutely. we You know, um, look at the life of Christ. Love itself walked among men mm -hmm. and they resisted him. I believe it was in the town of Jericho, where he did no miracles there, the gospel says. They resisted him and his message and his person completely, and he left. You know, I was, this past week on our Wednesday night Bible studies, I taught on communion. Mm -hmm. We talked about the idea of open and closed tables. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people were saying, you know, we should allow unbelievers, we shouldn't allow unbelievers, this and that. We're kind of having just an open discussion about it. And I said, should we allow, so in communion, should we stand up there and tell everybody who, what they can't do? You can't come to the table if you're not blah, 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 blah. Or rather, should we practice what Christ would have done? Because I don't see Jesus. I personally would not see a Jesus who would deny anybody from the table. I believe he would give them an invitation. So imagine an unbeliever is in your church. Tell them you can come to the table, but you must have faith in Christ. Not that if you don't have faith, you're not allowed. Change those words. Make an invitation for somebody to get saved through the celebration of the communion. And what better so, time? Exactly. What a better time. You know, when we're celebrating the broken body and blood of our Lord. And somebody uh, was talking with me about it, and they were like, you know, but, uh, 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 you know, what, what, what if somebody comes and, you know, they are an unbeliever, you know, they're going to whatever. And I said, okay, did not Christ offer the bread and the cup to Judas also? You know, and so when we think about that and we think about the fact Judas was chosen, we think about the fact that Christ knelt down and washed his feet also. Christ gave him the cup and the bread also. And then we want to sit there and say that God does not give his grace to unbelievers and God does not reach and actually inwardly call people to salvation. Man, that just does not seem consistent with the Christ I see in the Gospels. Good stuff. I think you kind of get, you got it. That gives, that gives me some stuff to think about. I don't know if I'm quite ready to respond. <laughs> That all come to me as I wrote that paper. Yeah. I had a lot of time to reflect and think. And dude, I communion for me is completely different now. Because when I start, because I wrote that paper on that Christ is a, he's our savior. Mm -hmm. He's our sanctifier, spirit baptizer, healer, and our soon coming king. That's the fivefold gospel message that Pentecostal theologians have argued that, um, Pentecostals should use as a theological framework for us to view ourselves. Well, mm -hmm. I took that theological framework and I applied the theology of the Eucharist to that framework. And so in 
communion, Christ is Savior. He's proclaimed mm-hmm. as Savior. He's sanctifier. If we believe that the Spirit of God is active in that, such as Wesley proclaimed, such as the early Pentecostals proclaimed, then the Spirit of God working in communion is able to work a sanctifying work in our lives through the, right. you know, Him convicting us of sin during the time of communion, because that's a, that's the time we repent of sin. That's right. the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's doing it through a more of institutionalized method, but that's the Spirit of God working sanctification mm-hmm. in us. Early Pentecostals also talked about their bodies being healed, and they talked about healing events during the communion. If Christ, if the Spirit is present and the Spirit is the one who applies the ministry of healing to us, why would we not ever think that, yeah, it can't happen during the communion? If the presence of Christ and the Spirit is truly present in, in the breaking of the bread and the blood, and we invite mm-hmm. the presence of the Spirit, we ought to expect the Spirit to do what the Spirit does. Heal us spiritually, heal, heal us physically. Um, early Pentecostals also spoke of spirit baptisms happening at communion. Yet again, if the Spirit is present, we ought to expect the Spirit to do what the Spirit does. And then finally, Christ is proclaimed a soon-coming king. You know, drink this cup, and as much as you drink it, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. So when mm-hmm. you're taking the body and blood, you're only doing this because we are proclaiming Christ is a soon-coming king. We're only doing this temporarily. We're partaking of this body and this blood for our broken body and, and the blood which is poured out and all that for now. But soon we're not going to do this anymore. And this Eucharistic meal is going to change the marriage supper of the lamb. I mean, I'm telling you, I, it's just made me think about so many different things. That's good stuff. That's absolutely something to, to think about, to consider. And that's again, another aspect of God's grace, even God's provenient grace at, at work in, in the church. But, um, to move on, we've got a few passages of Scripture that we wanted to read. Uh, the first is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. And um, this verse, this passage in particular, um, trust me, I understand this is Old Covenant. I understand that this is not exactly how grace operates. We are no longer under the law, but under grace. But everything in the law points to Christ. The law is about Christ. The law is about Him. So keeping that in mind, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. Uh, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants." by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So I think what Moses is setting before them is is the choice that we have today. I think when 
Jesus says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. That's the, that's the thing we see. That's the picture. You know, he's the bronze serpent in the wilderness. He's the one we look to. And that's the choice. Life is presented to us. Not that we have to do anything. Not that, I mean, we, we trust God. We have faith in Jesus. And that's presented to us. That's given to us freely. And we just simply make the choice to accept it or to reject it. We truly have the choice of life and death. Yep. And if we reject it, that's our doing. If we mm -hmm. choose it, that's the effectual work of the Spirit of God in our lives, assisting Absolutely. us, enabling us, and causing us to choose Him. Absolutely. Absolutely. It should not be understood that we believe some sort of it's only our choice and we choose Christ. No, friends. Right. Christ has chose us from the foundation of the right. world. The Bible is clear on that. We who have faith in Christ are God's elect as he has chosen us. Yes. And we, I mean, we've talked about election on previous episodes mm -hmm. and that it is the working of the Spirit of God in us that we are in living by faith today. That's the, that's the biggest difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant, specifically in this context is that life is just given to us. Their choice was to follow the commandments, was to do these certain things, and they'll have life. Or they can choose to reject God and have death. Christ is given for us. Christ is sacrificed for us. It's done. His work is finished. The thing that we do, the, thing that, the way we choose death, is rejecting Him is rejecting the free gift of God, not accepting his gift, not accepting the, you know, resisting the call of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That's, that's the choice. Not that we save ourselves, not that we do anything, not that we work, not that we follow so many commandments or clean ourselves up so much to the point that we're saved. It's simply God choosing us, and if we reject him, it's our fault. Let's go to Acts chapter 7. Mm -hmm. And this is Stephen standing before the Jewish officials as they're about to stone him. This is Acts chapter 7, 51. This is Stephen standing before the men who are about to stone him. And, you know, you'd think if, you know, you've got a bunch of people picking up rocks about to stone and kill you, you'd talk a little bit nicer to him. But Stephen does not <laughs> pull any punches. He does not. Let's just start at verse 48. He says, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Them's is fighting words coming out of the mouth of oh, Stephen. Yeah. But what we wanted to look oh, yeah. at is the fact that he says, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. You are doing so just as your fathers did. Mm -hmm. Not only does he say you are resisting, you always are resisting, but their fathers have also resisted in the past. Mm -hmm. 
And if anything, the Old Testament is a testimony of exactly what Stephen is telling us, that they resisted the Spirit of God. They resisted yeah. God's grace. They resisted God's effectual call to them. Yes. And that's, yeah, that's the, you know, the point of this passage is that what what did their fathers do? Their fathers resisted the call of God. Their fathers fought against the, the same people who God was sending prophets to. The same people who the promises of God were made to yep. were the ones who were killing the prophets of God, who were resisting the promises of God. You know, again, thinking they were doing a service to God, but at the same time, they were they were resisting Him. The ones who received the law, again, as, as Paul says, the ones who the ones to whom belong the law, the prophets, the promises of God, these are the ones who rejected Him. These are the ones who killed the prophets. These are the ones who were always resisting the Holy Spirit. Yep. As you said, the Old Testament is an example of resistible grace. That's right. And, you know, a lot of people want to talk about how the Old Testament portrays evil things. Those are portrayed for the very fact that it's an example to us, as Hebrews teaches us, that these people resisted the grace of God. Look how evil they have become. Something mm-hmm. as awful and terrible as what we find in Judges chapter 19. That is what happens when humans resist God's mm-hmm. grace. Mm-hmm. God gave them a lot of grace. I mean, it says it right here in verse 53. They received the laws ordained by the angels, yet they did not keep it. The grace of God was given to them as they mm-hmm. were the only people in the history of the world who received the explicit written law of God for which they should mm-hmm. live by. And they resisted it. They hated it, they forsook him, resisted his grace, resisted his spirit, and ran after idols and participated in heinous acts of idol worship. Mm-hmm. So is the is the grace of God re- resistible? Yes. Oh yeah. Yes, it is. And that's what <clears throat> that's the and that's that's the thing that causes them to to kill him. As he says, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it, you resisted the Holy Spirit. He says, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. The, the responsibility that he puts on them, the, yeah, the responsibility that he puts on them is so strong, he lays it right at their feet and they can't stand to hear it because somewhere deep down they've heard the law they know the promises of god they know they're responsible he doesn't say (laughs) he doesn't say by a choice not of your own by some some mysterious power you resist to the grace of god no he says you did it you're responsible you should have known better and it it disturbs them to the point that they gnash their teeth at him and take him outside of the city and stone him. And that's one of the main implications of resistible grace is not that, and I, and I don't want to, I don't want to be that Arminian who goes, well, eh, all Calvinists believe that God's completely responsible for your sin. Cause I know they don't think that. I think 
maybe it's a logical conclusion of it, but I know they don't think that. I know they don't preach that. That's right. But this to me, this view of resistible grace makes sin all the more heinous because it's not by some eternal decree, not by an outside force, not by God just declaring you will not believe. It's you actively choosing to resist the Holy Spirit. That's a heinous act. That's sin. That's, yeah, that's, that's weighty. That seems to me more more of an awful thing than than somebody who will not effectually be called to yep. resisting the Holy Spirit. Yep. Someone who is actually being called to resisting and resisting is much more guilty. Absolutely. Yeah, it, re, it makes us reconsider our view of sin when we understand the fact that when we do sin, Every sin is an act of rebellion against the Spirit of God. Absolutely. Every single sin, even the sin of an unbeliever who has been turned over to a reprobate mind, mm-hmm. act of rebellion against the Spirit of God. Absolutely. So, friends, I hope we cleared up a few things for you on this episode. I hope that this all made sense. I hope that the quotes we gave you and stuff is helpful. Um, Thank you guys for listening so much. We really appreciate our gro- small and quickly growing audience. Um, mm-hmm. Continue to share this with your friends. The fastest way a podcast can grow is by word of mouth. And, you know, as I tell you, the Apple podcast, I believe it's starting to work. I'm seeing our numbers go up and up and up every week. I really appreciate you guys, um, our core audience we have right now. And yet again, you know, as I said earlier in the episode, I apologize for, you know, those that week or so where we didn't publish anything. We, we had a lot. We've had a lot going on over here on this end of the Super Armenian Brothers. <laughs> but uh, we're going to we're going to try and not let that happen again. OK, but um, man, Colt, will you just read the closing scripture? Yes, sir. <clears throat> now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus, our Lord equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory, forever and ever. Amen.